Hear now the words of our gospel lesson from the book of Luke, chapter 20. Some Sadducees, those who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and asked him a question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no children, the man shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first married and died childless. Then the second and the third married her. And so in the same way, all seven died childless. Finally, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had married her. Jesus said to them, Those who belong to this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of a place in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Indeed, they cannot die anymore because they are like angels and are children of God, being children of the resurrection. And the fact that the dead are raised, Moses himself showed in this story about the bush, where he speaks of the Lord as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now God is God not of the dead, but of the living, for to God all of them are alive. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him another question. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our children are invited to continue their time of worship now, and we will go to God in prayer. God of our questions, guide us as we seek understanding today. May we have the courage to listen deeply and to be shaped by the answers that we hear. Amen. As I've imagined this text this week, I've imagined the whole of Luke chapter 20 in a theater format with multiple scenes. Perhaps you can claim the live version of The Little Mermaid this week for that thought. But regardless, that's what came to mind. Each scene opens revealing a group of people interacting with Jesus as he is teaching in the temple. As the audience, we become privy to overhear people who represent these smaller divisions of Judaism, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, and they are word-sparring with Jesus as they ask Jesus what they believe to be impossible questions for him to answer. The first scene questions his authority. By whose authority do you teach all of these things? Jesus replies to their question with his own question. And as they refuse to be backed into what they perceive as a corner by Jesus, so also Jesus refuses to answer their question at all. The second scene questions whether the people should pay taxes to the emperor. Of course, Jesus again senses their motive to trap him with their questioning and answers appropriately. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. And so the third scene is this one, our text today. 
It seems like a simple enough exchange of words, yet with layer upon layer of ways that we might begin to unweave its complexity. From what vantage point should we begin to unpack this scene? Should we start with the characters? Should we start with the question and the answer? Should we start with life and death? Should we start with life from human perspective and life from God's resurrection perspective? Should we begin with the motive for why this question is being asked in the first place? Hold that thought. And then I want you to remember the first time you ever flew on an airplane. That jittery excitement mixed with the tight grip on the armrest handle. The gum you put in your mouth at the suggestion of everyone who has done this before while still experiencing the eardrum-crushing pressure at takeoff. There's the angle of ascent that sharply reminds you that you are not on land anymore, and you hope this wind resistance thing really works. And then there's the view from the window. The cars and the houses and the trees that shrink in size so quickly to the size of matchbox cars and then monopoly houses, and the faint resemblance of a head of broccoli. Today, I don't want us to fly quite to those heights, but perhaps an aerial view can inform our approach to this text a little bit. The scribes and the Pharisees have backed down, and they've become silent after the first two questioning encounters with Jesus. And the Sadducees step up into this momentary void. The Sadducees are a group within Judaism that don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They honor only the five books of Moses as sacred, so Genesis through Deuteronomy. They decide to focus their question in on the practice of leveret marriage in this exchange with Jesus. This practice where a childless widow becomes married to her brother-in-law after her husband's death, preserving the possibility that she might give birth to a child and carry on her dead spouse's family name. So the Sadducees decide to toss Jesus this riddle and see what Jesus can do with it. It's a brain teaser, if there ever was one in their view, one he couldn't possibly answer sufficiently. Whose wife will the woman be in the resurrection if she has been married seven times in her earthly life? They've put a constraint on Jesus, a test of sorts, an attempt to limit the ways he can work his way through this question. They question here not for learning or growth or edification of their religious understandings, but rather to make Jesus look foolish. Their minds already made up around the issue of resurrection They have nothing to lose by questioning Jesus in this way, or at least that's what they assume. Questions serve an important function in our language with each other. If I ask you, what is the temperature going to be on Tuesday this week? You can tell me that it's going to be 29 degrees, really. And I will know to take that information and be sure to find my winter gloves and hat and scarf before Tuesday morning. Questions can shape our life together in good ways as we practice curiosity and learning and growth. 
Open-ended questions, of course, reveal more than yes or no questions. Albert Einstein famously wrote, question everything. Be curious about everything. Learn from everything. Wonder about everything. But questions can also be asked to validate your own point of view, whether frustration or anger or even joy. Or even to back someone else into a narrow, unanswerable corner, having made up your mind that no answer that anyone might give can shape your own belief or opinion. This questioning about questions reminded me of a picture book by Matt de la Pena. It's called The Last Stop on Market Street. Do you know it? In the story, a little boy named CJ is leaving church with his nana. As they step out of the church, they are on their way to the last stop on Market Street through their neighborhood. Along the way, CJ questions his nana. As children, and adults, frankly, are sometimes want to do, CJ seems to have a tone to his questions, indicating he wishes he could be doing anything else but going with his nana. Each time his nana avoids the obvious minutia, she could quit back in frustration and instead paints a bigger picture, attempting to shift his perspective. How come we gotta wait for the bus in all this wet? CJ asks. Nana replies, trees get thirsty too. Don't you see that big one drinking through a straw? How come we don't got a car? What do we need a car for? We got a bus that breathes fire, an old Mr. Dennis who always has a trick for you. And as they get on the bus, Mr. Dennis pulls a coin out from behind CJ's ear. How come that man can't see? What do you know about seeing? Some people watch the world with their ears. That's a fact. And their noses too, said the man, sniffing at the air. Whose wife will the woman be? Jesus says she's a child of the resurrection where there is no death. And even Moses, whom you revere, knows this. Remember Exodus 3? God claims even there as the bush burns, but is not consumed, to be the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The God of those who are long dead from a human vantage point, but are very much alive to God. This aerial view of resurrection holds so much more than your earthly scenario could ever bring to the table. Jesus knows exactly what they're trying to do. He is aware of the political and religious climate surrounding him. Even so, his reply implies that they have asked a question narrow in scope, whatever their motive. He chooses not to respond to their motive and simultaneously chooses not to respond with a narrow answer. Think bigger, Jesus seems to be encouraging. Change your vantage point. Of course, we know that changing your vantage point and shifting your perspective can be everything. A view from 30,000 feet in an airplane reveals the topography of the earth in a fuller way than one can appreciate from the ground. 
A change in physical perspective lets you see your home differently as you prepare to stage it, to sell it. A change in who you abide in relationship near or with reveals your privilege in eye-opening ways. A change in your role in a company or an organization lets you see your previous complaints or your pedestal praise surrounded by context that was previously missing. A change in the way you expect a question to be answered lets you see if the question asked was framed correctly or was even the correct question to ask in the first place. Even in this room, a change in the place where you sit means a nuanced difference in what you hear or see or experience. Sit somewhere else next week and see what I mean. Sarah Bessie writes in her new book, Miracles and Other Reasonable Things, Every time I build an edifice for God to live within, God transcends it while still abiding in it. It is always the shore and the ocean, the gate to both home and wilderness. Just when I feel that I know who God is, God unbecomes that vision and remakes. Just when I am certain that I will always experience God in the same ways, a new path opens. Once upon a time, God was certainty and right answers. Then God became the questions. I wonder what it means for God to abide within the ideas that we have built around God, but then to transcend them. Particularly as we gather here, Sunday after Sunday, Particularly as we near the end of the church year, only three Sundays until Advent begins, this is one of them. And only seven Sundays until the new year and the arrival of 2020. I name all of those dates not to send any of you into panic mode for holiday preparations, but rather to wonder aloud about our questions and our answers as we are on the cusp of Advent waiting, as we wait to welcome a pastor into our midst, as we continue to seek out ways to live our lives that move all toward justice and love abundant, as we look for the ways to practice connecting with God in our everyday, frenetic, modern life. As we go about this journey, Are we able to name what our questions are, specifically, individually, and as a congregation? And are our questions too narrow? Are they centered in human minutiae? Are they surrounded by constraint that paralyzes, or constraint that propels us energetically into creative thinking? As we go about this journey, how might God be calling out to us and answering those questions that we have more boldly, more expansively? How might God be transcending our questions and revealing and opening to paths that are God-sized and God-breathed? May we discern together, and may we have the courage to listen deeply and trust in the freedom that will come 
If we allow ourselves to be shaped by the answers God reveals to the questions we posit as we view the present through God's promises. Amen.